When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I look with great anxiety for the firm establishment of the new government in France, being perfectly convinced that if it takes place there, it will spread sooner or later all over Europe. I consider the establishment and success of their government as necessary to stay up our own and to prevent it from falling back to that kind of halfway house, the English Constitution. It cannot be denied that we have among us a sect who believe that to contain whatever is perfect in human institutions. That the members of this sect have, many of them, names and offices which stand high in the estimation of our countrymen. I still rely that the great mass of our community is untainted with these heresies, as is its head, i.e. Washington. At the same time as the bank bill was being deliberated by Congress in early February 1791, Secretary of State Jefferson was composing this letter to George Mason of Virginia. It's with this that we'll begin this episode of the Presidencies of the United States. I am, as always, your humble host, Jerry Landry. Thus far, our story has been one of a nation coming together and, though facing some bumps in the road, finding their way through and coming back together to compromise and work towards a common goal. Well, 1791 is going to be the end of that. There are a number of complicated factors that work together to shift the tone and the course of public discourse and the political landscape, and I intend to devote the next few episodes to examining those. For this episode, we'll be looking at more of the internal divisions, and in particular, the conflict between Jefferson and Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton. In the next episode, we'll take a look at the landscape of U.S. foreign relations that plays a role in exacerbating conflicts within the United States. After that, we'll have an episode where we will return to the western frontier to see what steps are taken after St. Clair's defeat to bring that region into the fold and expand the authority, industry, and population of the nation into the modern Midwest. We'll conclude this period by an examination of the institution of slavery in the United States prior to the invention of the cotton gin in 1793. After this series of episodes, we'll return to Philadelphia in time to wrap up Washington's first term of office with the election of 1792. So, one item I wanted to note before we delved in. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've tried to be deliberate in my use of terms when describing various groups in the early government. In the last episode, when discussing the debate over the bank bill, I talked about the proponents and opponents of the bill. I did not talk about the Federalists or the Republicans or Democratic Republicans, or Jeffersonian Republicans, that groups referred to by various names over time. I didn't talk about them because, technically, they don't exist at this point. The term Federalist was in the contemporary lexicon, but that referred back to the debate over the Constitution to denote someone who was a supporter of the Constitution. This was not, however, a direct correlation to what became the Federalist Party. Indeed, there were some supporters of the Constitution who joined up with the Republican Party, James Madison being the most commonly known example. What would become known as the first party system was not yet in operation, though the foundations for it had been put into place. 
At this point, it's more accurate to talk about pro-administration and anti-administration groups, but even these are not well-defined. Someone may vote for an administration proposal once, then vote against on the next three bills to come across. Some leaders were beginning to emerge, though. Madison would serve as a rallying figure for the anti-administration forces in the House, while Fisher Ames of Massachusetts would be a de facto leader of supporters of the Washington administration. Indeed, many of the administration's supporters would come from the North. Elias Boudinot of New Jersey would aid Ames in the House, while Oliver Ellsworth of Connecticut, Rufus King of New York, and a newcomer in the Second Congress, George Cabot of Massachusetts, a man who Ames would later call the, quote, keeper of my conscience and judgment, would push administration proposals forward in the Senate. Though there were some pro-administration congressional members from the South, like Representative William Lawton Smith of the Palmetto State and Senator Samuel Johnston of North Carolina, the representatives from the southern states would prove more likely to be leaders in the anti-administration faction. Though southern states had initially sent mostly Federalists, i.e. supporters of ratifying the Constitution, to represent them in Congress, these members soon found themselves at odds with policies supported by the Washington administration, and they were joined before long by anti-Federalists James Monroe and John Taylor of Caroline, the two new senators from Virginia. Some were baffled by the sectional divide. Samuel Johnston wrote to James Iredale in 1790 that, quote, the sentiments of the Northern or Eastern and Southern members of Congress consistently clash, even when local interests are out of the question. This is a thing I cannot account for. Even the lawyers from these different quarters cannot agree on the principles and construction of law, though they agree among themselves. John Taylor's biographer, Robert Shalhope, when considering the sectional divide in the early constitutional government, postulates that, quote, individuals from separate parts of the nation held varied conceptions of what America was and what it should become. Republicanism, which carried Americans through the Revolution, now meant different things to different people. To New Englanders, Republicanism was highly moralistic and coercive. They perceived America as an organic community bound together by a strong central government that actively fostered the economic and moral well-being of the nation through direct intervention. The middle states spawned diametrically opposed views of republicanism. Many farmers and working-class individuals espoused an equalitarian and individualistic creed, which the merchant and commercial elites of Philadelphia and New York City detested. Like most of his fellow Southerners, Taylor perceived republicanism as localistic and libertarian. A powerful, distant government exercising economic and social sway over Virginia planters was anathema. Thus, throughout the decade of the 1790s, he struggled to protect what he believed to be the original principles of the American Republic from social and political degradation. Through his efforts, John Taylor conceptualized the essence of Jeffersonian republicanism. Taylor, however, was more of a thinker. If the developing Republican cause was to find strength and take root, it would have to go beyond ideological thinking and the congressional back and forth. It would require organization and leadership, such as the pro-administration forces were already a few steps ahead on. As early as April 25, 1789, Fisher Ames was writing that, quote, I'm in hopes that we shall think and act as a nation, and in proportion as state prejudices and preferences shall subside, the federal government will gain strength. Then a few weeks later, on May 16, wrote that, quote, I am sick of fluctuating councils, of governing by expedience. Let us have stability and system. 
Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Part of the organization of the pro-administration forces was inherent with the nature of the executive branch. By the nature of the executive, they had to organize and plan on a national scale rather than thinking solely of one region. Since Washington had made a point of composing his official administration and choosing for his advisors individuals from various regions of the nation, he was able to get a variety of perspectives. However, one has to wonder whether he hindered his administration by choosing what would later be dubbed a team of rivals for his first cabinet. Hindsight, as always, is 2020. Now, it must be said that Jefferson and Hamilton, the two chief rivals in the administration, didn't disagree on everything. Jefferson was fascinated by the subject of coinage, and thus, shortly after joining the administration, had begun work on a report on the weights and measures of coins, which he sent on to Congress on July 4, 1790. Hamilton, in turn, prepared his report on the mint, and in the process of preparing it, consulted with Jefferson, with Jefferson returning a copy of it to Hamilton and asserting that, quote, I have read your report over with a great deal of satisfaction. Hamilton's report would be submitted on January 28, 1791, soon after the proposal for the National Bank, but Congress wouldn't immediately act on it. By the time it did, the rift between the two cabinet secretaries would have grown substantially. When considering the animosity that developed between Hamilton and Jefferson, one has to wonder whether part of it was just the nature of the beast. Lest you think this is another instance of the early days of government and precedents and boundaries that had yet to be established, I wanted to share this quote from a recent article in The Economist regarding the Trump administration's shift in its approach to the State Department. Quote, The scale of the assault Mr. Trump has launched on the State Department is unprecedented, yet consistent with a decades-old trend. The National Security Council, which has swollen from a staff of 20 in the late 1960s to over 400 under Barack Obama, has supplanted it as the primary instrument of foreign policymaking. Most federal agencies, including the Treasury and the Department of Homeland Security, now communicate with their foreign counterparts directly, not, as they once did, through diplomats. Foreign policy has become an all-government affair. Every department is doing diplomacy, and it's not clear that the State Department is the most influential, says Jeremy Shapiro, a former State Department advisor now at the European Council on Foreign Relations. The result is a diplomatic cadre in reduced circumstances and exposed to political attack, yet which still performs important feats that no other agency can. The process of determining the boundaries of authority and purview that began with Washington's first cabinet is a constant in government that continues up to the present day, 2017 as of this recording, and the lines, even when drawn, are not always as rigid and conclusive as they may seem. As noted by Jefferson scholar Merrill Peterson, quote, 
Economic policy is inseparable from foreign policy. Trade is a weapon of diplomacy, the only potent weapon in the American armory, to be employed in pursuit of the national interest. Thus, it's not difficult to understand why the Secretary of State and the Treasury Secretary may find themselves on common grounds in terms of their departmental portfolio. At first, it did seem like they were well-defined. The legislation creating the State Department outlined its various responsibilities in dealing with foreign governments and entities. Treasury, meanwhile, was tasked with various fiscal and financial matters, including, quote, to prepare and report estimates of the public revenue and the public expenditures, to superintend the collection of the revenue, to execute such services in the sale of public lands as may be required by law, to superintend the adjustment and preservation of the public accounts, and to receive, keep, and disperse the monies of the United States, among other tasks. That seems clear enough. Accountants go into the Treasury Department to the left. Diplomats, you're in the State Department to the right. However, even this early iteration of boundaries between departments wasn't quite as clear-cut as it seems. The public lands that the Treasury Department were involved in selling were the, quote, vast, unsettled public domain west of the Alleghenies. Though on paper in Philadelphia, these lands were the property of the United States. In practice, there were people living on these lands. There were Miami and Shawnee and Kickapoo and Potawatomi and many other peoples in the Northwest, while in the Southwest there were Cherokee and Muscogee, or Creek as they're commonly known, and Chickasaw and Cushada and many other peoples, some of whom were recent arrivals, while others have been there for centuries. As we discussed in episode 1.7, the Washington administration's policy towards the Native peoples was to seek to find a diplomatic resolution, quote, by forming treaties of peace with them, in which their rights and limits should be explicitly defined, and the treaties observed on the part of the United States with the most rigid justice by punishing the whites who should violate the same. One would think, with the State Department being established as the agency of diplomacy, that this would fall under their purview. But no, that duty went to the War Department for two main reasons. First, the State Department was to communicate with entities recognized as foreign powers, and the United States had no desire to legitimize that the nation-states of the native peoples that fell within their imposed borders were, in fact, a co-equal nation. Second, though their preference be for peace, the Washington administration was also willing to use military force to set boundaries with native peoples. Having the diplomatic arm be housed in the same department as the war-making authority logistically made it easier to make that decision and transition from one path to the other. However, the War Department had to coordinate with the Treasury, as once the lands were available by either treaty or force, it would be their responsibility to conduct the land sales to private citizens, be they speculators or settlers. This relationship would ultimately prove to be a placid one mainly because Hamilton, quickly becoming the recognized ideological leader of the Federalists, exerted his influence over the staunch Federalist Secretary of War, Henry Knox. However, as time went on, the departmental lines would continue to blur as Congress added authority and responsibility on the executive branch. The State Department, despite being primarily responsible for foreign policy, also became the primary point of contact for federal marshals and attorneys and federal judges as those offices were created. Remember, there wouldn't be a Justice Department for another 80 years. 
1790, Congress would add more domestic responsibility to the State Department by putting that office in charge with taking the census every 10 years, as well as granting patents and copyrights. The reason for putting the census under the State Department is that, at the time and indeed until 1840, it would be administered by federal marshals. That's right, those guys who report it back to the State Department. The administration of patents and copyrights, though, would become burdensome to a department that only had five employees at its onset, one of which being a part-time translator. Whether through intellectual curiosity, logistical need, or a combination of both, Jefferson would involve himself personally in the patent review process, and, though expressing an interest in some of the innovations that found their way onto his desk, Jefferson would ultimately complain that these responsibilities, quote, cut up my time into the most useless fragments. It would seem, at least to me, that this would have been better carried out in a more appropriate function for the Treasury Department, which had 70 employees as of the end of 1790, but instead, one clerk in the State Department would serve as the Patent Office. As had occurred in his military career, Washington would find those immediately under him clamoring for influence. Indeed, Washington himself initially treated it, quote, as a fraternal spat between two of his surrogate sons, much in the same way as he had among his official family in the field. This, however, would prove to be something more. Not only within the administration did both feel that they were justified over the other to be Washington's primary advisor and second-in-command, but also they increasingly saw in themselves a responsibility to help craft the course of the nation as a whole and in the other, a danger threatening everything that had been built by the revolutionary generation. It was this motivation that some attributed to Jefferson and Madison planning a trip to New York and New England after the adjournment of Congress in March. On the surface, the two Virginians claimed when they set out from Philadelphia in May that their trip was, quote, to observe the vegetation and the wildlife in the region, and they traveled into the upstate to Lakes George and Champlain, then made their way down the Connecticut River and across Long Island to end up in New York City. As part of this trip, however, they are reputed to have met with Chancellor Robert Livingston and Aaron Burr, both known to be opponents to Alexander Hamilton and the administration. Indeed, Burr would be joining the ranks of the Senate with the Second Congress after having defeated Hamilton's father-in-law for what had been Schuler's seat. They also met with someone who we'll be talking more about in a few minutes, Philip Freneau. The two men did at least arrange to stay with Schuler, which, assuming that there was a political motivation to the trip, could be pointed to in order to cover the political angle. Even if they had not sought it, one can comfortably surmise that traveling to this part of the country with which they were unfamiliar provided them with knowledge of political conditions on the ground which they would use to their benefit. Even Jefferson biographer Noble Cunningham, while expressing strongly his belief that the trip was not intended for political purposes, admits that, quote, the two men no doubt talked of politics, and indeed, they made contacts in New York and elsewhere that later would be politically useful. Certainly, they would need all the contacts they could get, as when they returned from the trip, they found partisan winds blowing stronger than ever. Earlier in the year, a copy of Thomas Paine's The Rights of Man had made its way to the states and had been lent to Madison, who then passed it on to Jefferson. We'll talk more about the circumstances in Europe around which the rights of man were written, but for now, just know that Paine basically argued that a French-style revolution was needed in England. As a printer with whom Jefferson was unfamiliar was waiting for the copy to use in order to reprint it for distribution in the U.S., 
Jefferson finished it, then sent it along to the printer with a note explaining why he was the one sending it along. He was surprised when, a week later, the pamphlet was out for sale at Philadelphia booksellers with his note to the printer included as a foreword. This wouldn't have been too bad except for the fact that he stated towards the end of the letter, quote, that something was at length to be publicly said against the political heresies which had of late sprung up among us, not doubting but that our citizens would rally again round the standard of common sense. Now, for those of you who know anything about Mr. Jefferson, he certainly did not intend for that public statement against the political heresies to be from him, especially since they were seen as an attack on the vice president, Jefferson's old friend, John Adams. See, Adams the year prior began publishing a series of essays entitled Discourses on Davila, in which Adams responded to the French Revolution by examining what he saw as the danger of, quote, unbridled democracy, and made the argument for a hereditary monarchy and an American aristocracy to lead the nation. Why do people assume Jefferson's statement to be in reference to Adams's essays, you ask? Well, it seems that the secretary did have the vice president in mind when he wrote the words, as he explained to Madison. Jefferson wrote that, quote, I tell the writer freely that he is a heretic, but certainly never meant to step into a public newspaper with that in my mouth. Jefferson sent a letter to Washington explaining the situation and asserting that, quote, I have a cordial esteem increased by long habits of concurrence and opinion in the days of his republicanism. And even since his apostasy to hereditary monarchy and nobility, though we differ, we differ as friends should do. Mr. Adams will unquestionably take to himself the charge of political heresy, as conscious of his own views of drawing the present government to the form of the English Constitution, and I fear will consider me as meaning to injure him in the public eye. Quite likely, Jefferson expected for the controversy to blow over by the time he got back to the Capitol. But instead, he returned to find that an attack against the rights of man had been published under the pen name of Publicola in the Boston Columbian Sentinel. This new author argued more along the lines of Davila in asserting that public passions were more of a danger to the nation than reasonable thought, and concluded with the call of, quote, let us remain immovably fixed at the banners of our constitutional freedom and not desert the impregnable fortress of our liberties for the unsubstantial fabric of visionary politicians. At first, it was assumed by many, Jefferson included, that the author was the vice president, but it was in fact his eldest son, John Quincy Adams, who despite a previous admiration for the Secretary of State, now objected to Jefferson's public attack on his father. Payne's The Rights of Man and Adams's Publicola essays would provide ideological fodder for the developing political factions. We're still not at a point where we can talk about the Federalists and Republicans yet, but we're close. Oh, so very close. Before we get there, though, it should be noted that Jefferson and Madison were not the only Virginians using the congressional recess as an excuse to travel. Washington, as a follow-up to his New England tour in 1789 and trip to Rhode Island in 1790, set out on a tour of the South. This tour was seen as important given the opposition presented by Southern members of Congress to administration proposals. However, this would not be an easy trip for Washington to undertake. In total, he was projected to travel 1,816 miles over a period of three months in a region with roads that were of even poorer quality than he had faced in New England. Though Washington was himself a Southerner, 
He had never traveled further south than the northern part of North Carolina, so this would be a learning experience as well as a PR campaign. He left Philadelphia on March 20th and would be on a near-constant social schedule through towns large and small for the next few months. His largest reception came in Charleston, South Carolina, where he was transported to the city on a barge with 12 ship captains serving as oarsmen, while around 40 boats filled with the creme de la creme of Charleston society circled around and musicians and choirs filled the air with music. Oddly enough, just as rumors had developed about Hamilton's relationship with his sister-in-law while Washington was on his New England tour, so too would Washington be away from Philadelphia in the summer of 1791 for a new scandal involving the Secretary of the Treasury to develop. Around this time, a young woman named Maria Reynolds presented herself at Hamilton's home in Philadelphia and asked for his help. Originally from New York, she claimed that her husband had moved her and their daughter to Philadelphia recently, and after what had been an abusive relationship, had abandoned her. Hamilton agreed to give her money, and they arranged to meet that evening at the boarding house Mrs. Reynolds was staying at. When he arrived, she took him upstairs, and, quote, some conversation ensued, from which it was quickly apparent that other than pecuniary, i.e. financial consolation, would be acceptable. How do we know about all this, you ask? Why, because Hamilton wrote it all up in a pamphlet and had it printed, of course. Wait, what? He printed a pamphlet outlining the details of his own affair? Yes, yes he did, but that's on down the line. For now, just know that this was the beginning of what would come to be known as the Reynolds Affair in the story of Alexander Hamilton. While Hamilton was plotting romantic trysts, Jefferson and Madison were planning how to mobilize the opposition to the pro-administration schemes that Hamilton was heading up. Jefferson's may not have been the department with the most positions, but he decided in the fall to wield what power he could. At the time, the paper with the largest circulation in the nation was John Fenno's Gazette of the United States, and Fenno was pro-administration. The Virginians felt that there needed to be a counterbalance, a newspaper that would espouse their ideas of smaller government and an agrarian economy. Remember when I said to remember the name Philip Freneau? Well, this is where he comes in. Freneau was, like Madison, a graduate of Princeton and had been working as a writer for a paper in New York when Jefferson and Madison came through. At some point, a fellow classmate, Henry Lee of Virginia, supposedly suggested to Madison that Freneau be employed as he was clamoring to do and write against the pro-administration faction in Congress. Jefferson at the time was in need of a translating clerk in the State Department, and so, he offered that position to Freneau. Meanwhile, Jefferson, Madison, and Lee worked together, with Madison persuading the publisher of the paper Freneau had worked on in New York to underwrite a new paper in Philadelphia, and with the three men sending off letters to their friends and associates soliciting subscriptions for this new paper. Due to their efforts, the first issue of the National Gazette went out on October 31, 1791, and the partisan battles of the first party system can truly be said to have begun. The battle now expanded outside of the walls of the congressional chambers, out into the general populace, and the young republic would never be the same. This seems like as good of a stopping point as any. As stated earlier, next time, we'll examine how foreign affairs played a role in the development of the two parties in the United States and began to exert a greater influence on the agenda of the Washington administration. Until then, if you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, please feel free to reach out to me at Presidencies Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies. I can also be found on Twitter at presidencies89. 
Source information and past episodes can be found on the blog at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. And the podcast is available on both iTunes and Stitcher if you're not listening from there already. As always, thank you so much for listening and take care, dear friends. Until next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Thank you.